you definitely made the message clear there. Appreciate that. Thanks, Jason, for helping too. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Romans chapter 5. We're working our way verse by verse through the book of Romans. We are in chapter 5 today, verses 12 through 17. Death in Adam, life in Christ. That's what I've titled the message. Lord, we thank you for your word now. Minister to our hearts as we study together. Give me grace to teach accurately, clearly, in a way that uh, you would have me teach. Uh, so be glorified in our time in the word and, and use it, minister to our hearts. Uh, each and every one here, Lord, uh, you know exactly where we are. Meet us where we are with your truth now this morning. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, you note uh, on the overhead, the, the theme of Romans is the righteousness of God, uh, the gospel of God, and we're in that section, finishing up here pretty close, uh, justification by grace through faith, 321 through 521. Well, in the book of Romans, uh, Paul first establishes that all are under the condemnation of sin, no exception. Then he establishes that justification is by faith alone in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, so the flow of thought goes like this, justification by faith alone, it's stated, chapter 3, 21 through 31, illustrated in the life of Abraham, chapter 4, 1 through 22, applied to us as believers in 4, 23 through 25, and then built upon as we go into chapter 5, 1 through 11. And that's where we pick up our study today. Romans 5, 12 through 21 is commonly said to be one of the most important and at the same time one of the most difficult passages in the whole Bible. In fact, one pastor I was reading said, after several hundred pages of commentary on this, I decided maybe I should look for a different job. <laughs> yeah, it has its challenges. I'm not sure you should do that, though. Uh, the main points are clear. But there are various details and nuances that are often debated and mused over at great length. And you'll see what I mean as we get into it this morning. Well, here Paul presents the great contrast between death and life related to two representative heads of the human race, namely Adam and Christ. Paul here shows that what we lost in Adam has been far surpassed by what we as believers now have gained in Christ. Where Adam failed miserably, Christ has succeeded exceedingly. Well, Paul has just emphasized the truth of the believer's reconciliation through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where he left off, chapter 5, verse 11. Now, in survey fashion... Paul summarizes where we were before Christ and how we got there, and now where we are as believers in Christ and how we got there. Let's pick it up, Romans 5, 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. The word therefore builds on what he has previously said in the chapter. Paul has emphasized justification by faith and reconciliation with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, note uh, the double emphasis here. Uh, Romans 5.1, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God 
through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then 5.11, not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Well, how can it be that all the reconciled can be made right with God through one person? How does that work? This is the question that Paul answers in Romans 5, 12 through 21. Well, to help us understand, he backs up and he shows how we are all sinners on the basis of our solidarity with Adam. In like manner, we as believers now are in solidarity with Jesus Christ. If I was to ask you, why you are a sinner, you would probably say to me, because I sin. Yes, that is true, but it goes much deeper than that. Your identification with sin goes back to your solidarity with Adam. We are born sinners by nature and then by choice. Paul begins verse 12 by drawing a parallel that he doesn't really finish until he gets to verse 18. Verse 12 begins with, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world. The world here is talking about the world of humanity. Sin was already a reality before it entered the world. You see, sin actually began in heaven with the revolt of Satan. And then through his conniving, it was brought to the world of humanity through one man, namely Adam. Notice it does not say that sin entered through one couple. Why does the woman get off? It, it does not say through one woman, but rather through one man. This man is clearly shown to be Adam, as seen in verse 14. Now, Eve actually sinned first. So why does it say that sin entered through one man? Why is the man held culpable with no mention of Eve? Well, Adam was created first and had headship responsibility. Actually, it was only Adam who directly received the command from God to not partake of the forbidden fruit. And that happened even before Eve was on the scene. Now, Adam knew full well what he was doing, and he deliberately sinned. But in contrast, Eve was deceived. Hence, the responsibility for the fall rests singularly on Adam's shoulders. It was through Adam's sin that death entered in, and thus spread to all men. The consequence of sin is death. God had clearly warned Adam in Genesis 2.17, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now the word death means separation. The Bible speaks of three aspects of death. Spiritual death, separation of relationship from God, happened the very day that Adam and Eve sinned. Physical death, separation of soul and spirit from the body what happens when you die physically. Your soul, your spirit leaves your body. 
And then there is second or eternal death, separation of body and soul eternally from God in hell. Eternal separation from God. Well, the very day that Adam sinned, that very day he experienced spiritual alienation and separation from God. He's hiding from God. He died spiritually and began to die physically. And the Bible teaches that if we die in sin without being reconciled to God, we will be forever separated from God in hell. Through the one man, Adam, sin and death entered the world. And in that event, death came to all people because all sinned. All sinned. Note, through one man, sin entered. And then note, all sinned in the very same verse. In Adam's sin, we all sinned. You say, that doesn't sound fair. I wasn't even there. Oh, but you were. You were in Adam, and you were there. And you are implicated in his sin. Five times in verses 15 through 19, Paul emphasizes that it was the obedience, or it was the offense, not the obedience. It was the offense, the disobedience of one man that brought death, judgment, and condemnation to all men. Clearly, one man is responsible for this. And yet, we all are represented in that one man. The next two verses, Romans 5, 13 and 14, go on to show that it was Adam's sin that was responsible for the death of the whole of humanity. Thus, universal death is attributed to a single, solitary sin of one man. In verses 12 through 19, we have the word one found 12 times. Now, there have been two main ways of explaining how the entire human race participated in Adam's original sin. Uh, you'll find this in any theology book. Uh, by the way, I, I really like, if you're looking for one theology book, uh, the Moody Handbook of Theology is a good one. Uh, I have many theology books, but that is a, a staple. Number one, uh, there's two of these two main views. Number one, the, the representative headship view. This view says that Adam represented and acted for the whole human race, and that is why Christ is spoken of as the second Adam, who could also represent the whole human race. The second view is what is called the seminal headship view. This view says, because the whole human race is tied back to the seed of Adam, thus we were all physically, organically, seminally, represented in the seed of Adam. So we could uh, summarize it like this. Perhaps there's a combination of both views in involved. Adam represented us, the representative headship. Adam contained us, seminal headship. All mankind actually sinned in Adam. That's the bottom line. In some sense, we were in Adam. We are all part of Adam. Adam, in some sense, is us. And we are Adam. As Adam sinned, we sinned. In view is a corporate solidarity in Adam. 
Now, the meaning of solidarity is defined as a unity or a union of a group or class of people who are bound together in what they share in common. Very simply, we were united in union with Adam in his sin. His sin was our sin. A uh, picture of uh, solidarity. Uh, it's a fitting uh, analogy because it, it pictures unified rebellion as a fist held up against God. Uh, we are unified as Adam's race in our defiance of God. And in Adam, we were all in on this. All of his descendants are really a chip off of the old block. We all come with the defiance of Adam, children of Adam. That's what we all are. Well, as we move into the next two verses, we see clearly that the imputation of sin is what is in view. The Bible teaches three basic imputations. Again, any basic theology book will spell this out in great detail. Uh, the reason the guy talked about hundreds and hundreds of pages, you get into these nuances, I'm telling you, there's no end of it. There's no end of the discussion. But there are three basic imputations. Uh, note these. Uh, there is the imputation of Adam's sin to the human race. That's what we're talking about here. Then there's the imputation of humanity's sin to Christ on the cross. And then there's the imputation of Christ's righteousness to believers. Now, to impute something means to put it to one's account. The dash at the end of verse 12 indicates that the comparison Paul has begun to make is not carried through on. He doesn't finish his thought here. He doesn't resume his thought until he gets to verse 18, which, Lord willing, we'll get to next week. But here's what verse 12 really brings out. Adam, sin, and that brought death and condemnation to the whole of mankind because we were all in Adam. That's what it's teaching us. Uh, John Donne wrote, No man is an island, entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. Any man's death diminishes me because I'm involved in mankind. And therefore, never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. Our sinful solidarity with Adam is profound. Going to the very core of our being. It's all about who we are, naturally speaking. Verse 13, Paul continues, For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Paul here is making a point. Adam defied a clear law of God. God clearly commanded him not to eat of the forbidden fruit. But then from Adam to Moses, there was no formal law, no formal law code. And sin is not imputed, put to one's account, when there is no law. Now, clearly sin was in the world as seen in the, the Lord, seeing that the wickedness of man was great in the earth to the end that uh, every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, Genesis 6, 5. It is seen in the Tower of Babel, uh, Genesis 11. 
It is seen in the fact that the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. Genesis 13, 13. <clears throat> Certainly there was the work of the law written in their hearts, the law of conscience that Paul mentions in Romans 2, 15. But Paul is not dealing with that here. His point here is that at this time there was no formal law. And therefore, sin was not imputed on that basis. Verse 14. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned, according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses. But on what basis? Since death is the penalty for breaking God's law, then these people died on the basis of someone else breaking the law. Namely, Adam. Adam. That's Paul's point. Yes, they sinned, but not in the exact same manner as Adam. Adam flagrantly broke the law of God in the garden, but they didn't. Since death is for breaking God's law, they died because of their solidarity with Adam in his sin. Thomas Constable uh, summarizes, since death is the penalty for transgression of the law, why did these people die? The answer is they died because they sinned in Adam. Adam transgressed God's law in the Garden of Eden. And ever since, his descendants have transgressed God's law, not just the Mosaic law. This accounts for the universality of death. Adam is described as a type of him who was to come, namely Christ. What Paul is presenting is a comparison and a contrast between Adam and Christ. Both through one act affected the whole of humanity. This is the key point of Adam being a type. We read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22, as in Adam all die. I mean, it's because of Adam that we all die. Even so, in Christ, all shall be made alive. Jesus in 1 Corinthians, Jesus, uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, references Jesus as the last Adam. Both Adam and Christ are representatives of the entire race, and their actions affect the entire human race. Life Application Bible, Adam's one act determined the character of the world. Christ's one act determined the character of eternity. Middletown Bible Commentary, Paul's main point in these two verses, that is Romans 5, 13 and 14, is that death passed to all men Verse 12, not because they sinned, but because Adam sinned. It was Adam's sin that brought death upon humanity. Well, we might here use the illustration of infants who die. These babies know nothing of right or wrong, and yet they die. Why? Well, because of their solidarity with Adam. When Adam sinned, his sin was credited 
to every one of his descendants without exception. Again, theologians call this the imputation of Adam's sin to the entire human race. Not only was Adam's sin imputed to us, but so also the condemnation for Adam's sin. We read in 518, we'll get to Lord willing next week, therefore as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men. One man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. When Adam sinned, the penalty was death. And we now all share in that death penalty as Adam's offspring. Now understand that Adam's sin and condemnation have been imputed to the entire human race. There's no such thing as an innocent person or an innocent baby. That is why we all die. Not only are we all sinners by way of imputation, but all people also have inherited a sin nature, which is also traced back to Adam. We all come with a nature that is bent towards evil. Every child is born with this reality. You say, not my child. Yeah, I'm afraid so. We are born sinners who come in the nature of Adam. At the moment of conception, we were instantly corrupted by sin. Now, we might compare this to a defective sin gene that has been passed down from Adam through our parents. David made reference of this. Psalm 51, 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Now, David is not saying there is something sinful about conception. It was God who commanded mankind to be fruitful and multiply. God would never tell people to sin. David in Psalm 51.5 was referring to the sinful nature that was inherent within him from the moment of conception. David understood that from the moment of conception, he was a sinner by nature. Thus, he was born a sinner. So uh, note on the overhead here, two aspects of sin. We have uh, in, an inherited sin nature. It's transmitted from our parents, Adam, all down to my dad, to me, to my children. But then we talk about imputed sin. Imputed sin is transmitted from Adam to each person. We are all in Adam. We all share in this reality of sin, being in sin. That's true for all of us. So imputed sin, inherited sin. Both are realities. So what are we saying then? Are babies condemned to hell simply because of their solidarity with Adam's sin? No. The Bible nowhere indicates that people go to hell simply because of imputed sin from Adam or because of an inherited sinful nature. The Bible speaks of a number of future judgments, whether it be the Bema seat, uh, the judgment of the sheep and the goats at Christ's second coming, and the great white throne judgment, which is the judgment of all the lost at the end of the age. 
at the end of the kingdom age, the, the millennial kingdom, that is. Now, the pattern in all these judgments is that judgment before God, without exception, is always based on a person's works, not on a person's nature. Let me show you. Here we go to the end, the great white throne judgment, the, the judgment of all the lost, of all the ages. Revelation 20, then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead small and great standing before God and the books were opened. High drama. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. Once your day in court, you'll get it. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one personally, each one according to his works. The judgments of Scripture are based on works, which shows responsibility and accountability for choices and actions. Now, on this basis, babies or people who die before the condition of accountability would have no basis to be judged. You see, they've done no works. They've done nothing in terms of works for which they might be held accountable. The fact that judgment is based on works indicates that people at the judgment were able to make responsible decisions for which they are held accountable. So my view is that the righteousness of Christ is imputed to those who never reach a condition of accountability. We read, again, jumping ahead to next week, but 519, for as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. All going back to Adam. So also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Just as Adam's sin was imputed to all people, so likewise God's provision of imputed righteousness has been made available to all people. This righteousness is received by faith, and people are accountable to believe. But for those who cannot believe, I take it that the righteousness of Christ is imputed to them on the sheer basis of grace alone. Keep in mind that justification by faith applies to those who have the ability to believe. Paul talks about the obedience of faith in Romans 1.5 and 16.26. In Romans 6.17, he says, You obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. Being justified by faith implies a certain level of responsibility and accountability. So, yes... There is the reality of imputed sin from Adam. But there is also the reality of the cross, where the sin of humanity was imputed to Christ. What people are now accountable for is personal sin, Revelation 20, and for what they do with the truth of Jesus Christ. Norman Geisler and Thomas Howey summarize what I've been sharing with you. We all sinned in Adam as our representative, and as a consequence, the guilt of Adam's sin was imputed to all of us. 
But Christ's death canceled this and released the human race from this judicial guilt. Even so, those who attain the age or the condition of accountability are responsible for personal sin and are therefore justly condemned. Verse 15. But the free gift is not like the offense. There's a real difference. For if by one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. Paul here is making a contrast, emphasizing the abounding superiority of what Jesus did. Yes, the effects of Adam's one sin were great. But the effects of what Christ did are even greater, only in a positive direction. It was by Adam's one offense that many died. That impacted many in a very negative way. However, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. What each one did, that is, Adam and Christ affected many. However, the enormity of what Christ did overshadows the negative effects of Adam's offense for all true believers. Note the tremendous emphasis on gift or grace here in Romans 5.15. Free gift, grace of God, gift, grace. It's like you just can't say it enough. Yes, it was terrible what Adam brought about, but in contrast, God's grace has superabounded to many. Now, the idea of gift here signifies freeness, free. In the New Testament, this word is used only in reference to God's good gifts to his people. Freeness linked with grace makes the emphasis especially strong. Grace also essentially means gift. It literally means unmerited favor. The offense of original sin came by one. And the free gift of grace also came by one. And the action of each one has affected many. Bible knowledge commentary, God's grace and gift by means of grace abound in the sense of reaching and being available to all people, but not necessarily being appropriated by all. Verse 16, and the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. The judgment that came from one offense resulted in condemnation. But the free gift that came from many offenses resulted in justification. Paul here makes a contrast between the one offense, Adam's single sin, that resulted in the condemnation of the entire human race, with the free gift that canceled out many offenses resulting in justification. Think about it. The one single sin of Adam is responsible for the death and the condemnation of the whole of humanity. One sin resulted in the fall of mankind in total. Have you seen the death and destruction brought about by that one sin? Have you seen starving children? Have you seen the rot of sickness and disease that takes your breath away? Have you seen the slow, painful, deteriorating death of people? It isn't pretty. It's incredible 
the awful consequences of sin, all brought about by the sin of one man. As a young man, I well remember the murder of my cousin. She was a beautiful young woman in her early 20s. The funeral was terrible. The mourning was surreal. I remember thinking to myself, how terrible is this thing called sin? And how horrendous is the reality of death? But I want you to try and get your head around the fact that it was one offense that brought this condemnation down on the whole of humanity. It wasn't a whole bunch of sins, but one. That's what the text says. One offense resulted in condemnation. The question of pain and suffering is one that the world seems to wrestle with more than any other. They want to know why a good God would allow this. Well, in the Garden of Eden, God allowed free choice. And Adam freely chose to defy God. And this is the result. The whole of human pain and suffering can be traced back to the fall. And the fallout of the fall has been horrific beyond description. But the culpability lies with man himself, not with God. The problem with natural thinking, unsaved thinking, is that uh, people tend to have a very low view of God and a very high view of self. I mean, who are we to judge God? A proper view of God sees him as so holy that death and the consequences of even one sin and its misery are totally justified. It speaks to the high holiness of God and why even a single sin is so very deadly serious. We need a proper high view of God. The question is asked, why do bad things happen to good people? I submit to you, the question itself is wrong. You see, there are no good people. As Paul has clearly shown, Romans chapter 3, verse 10, there is none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3, 12, there is none who does good, no, not one. The real the better question is this. Why does anything good ever happen to anyone? We all deserve to go to the unending tortures of hell immediately. But here is the point. If one single sin caused this much misery, what does this say about the magnitude of the sin debt and its seriousness that is upon the head of each and every one of us? How many sins have you, just you, committed? I mean, there are billions of people on the planet, and each of us has committed many sins. You ever tried to count up your sins? I mean, you're going to need a bigger tablet. If one sin brought this much misery, pain, destruction, and death, 
Just think about the immeasurability, the immeasurable amount of horror that our collective sin debt deserves to bring upon the human race, individually and collectively. One sin brought about death, sorrow, misery, mourning, and pain. But now, but now, the free gift of God's grace has taken care of the many offenses resulting in justification, declared perfectly righteous. That's the amazing thing in Paul's mind here. You see, Jesus didn't just take care of original sin, but also of all the sins that have been accumulating ever since then. Condemnation was for one sin, but God's gift has taken care of the many offenses to the end that we as believers are now declared righteous before God singularly on the basis of God's grace through faith. This speaks to the indescribable awesomeness of Christ's sacrifice, which allows God to freely forgive all sin and reconcile the ungodly who come to faith in him. It only took one sin to condemn the entire race. But in Christ, provision was made for many acts of sin. Christ paid for Adam's sin. He paid for all my sin. And he paid for all yours. He paid for the sin of the entire world. Put your theology aside and believe the scriptures. John 1.29, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Provision made for the whole world. 1 John 2.2, he himself is the propitiation, the satisfactory payment, the propitiation for our sins. Not for ours only, but also for the whole world. The whole world. Representative Adam, one sin, condemnation. Representative Christ, all sin paid for, justification. Adam, bad news. Christ, superabounding good news. Leon Morris, sin is not the last word, for the gift alters the sinner's entire situation. Charles Cranfield, this, this is a great statement. He said that one single misdeed should be answered by judgment is perfectly understandable. That the accumulated sins and guilt of all the ages should be answered by God's free gift, this is the miracle of miracles, utterly beyond human comprehension. Can you believe you're going to live forever in God's holy presence in his kingdom because of what Jesus did in that one act? It's an amazing reality. Verse 17, for if by the one man's offense death reigned, through the one, double emphasis on one, through the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Through the one man's offense death reigned. Note the double emphasis on the one. Adam. This all happened because of the sin of the one. The representation of Adam has been a disaster resulting in the long reign 
of death. You know, it's the problem we have in the world, right? We got a death problem. This is Adam's legacy. Adam's legacy. Death. Death has reigned as king over Adam's race. Death reigns in every era. Every era of human history. We all deal with it. Those close to you die, or they will die. You will die. Death reigns supreme. All fear it. No one escapes its rule. It's an old story. I don't know who wrote it, but it's called The Appointment in Samara. And the speaker here is death. There was a merchant in Baghdad who sent his servant to market to buy provisions. And in a little while, the servant came back white, trembling, said, Master, just now, when I was in the marketplace, I was jostled by a woman in the crowd, representing death. And when I turned, I saw it was death that jostled me. She looked at me, made a threatening gesture. Now lend me your horse, and I will ride away from this city and avoid my fate. I will go to Samara. And there death will not find me. The merchant lent him his horse. The servant mounted it. He dug in his spurs, in its flanks, and as fast as the horse would gallop, he went away. Then the merchant went down to the marketplace, and he saw me. That's death. Standing in the crowd. And he came to me and said, Why did you make a threatening gesture to my servant when you saw him this morning? And death said, Oh, that was not a threatening gesture. It was only a start of surprise. I was astonished to see him in Baghdad, for I have an appointment with him tonight in Samarra. <laughs> There's no escaping death. It is appointed unto men once to die. The world is a place of cemeteries. Thanks to one man's offense. Bible knowledge commentary, death is a tyrant ruling over people and bringing every person under its fear and into its grip. However, here's the good news. The reign of death is met by the much more of those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness. All the way through, the emphasis is on the severity of Adam's one sin. But that is contrasted with the much more that we as believers now have in Christ. Sin and its effects were horrible. But the effects of what Christ has done for us far outstrip this in terms of glorious benefits. Note as we work our way through, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace. Much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness. Grace abounded much more. Sin abounded, yep. But grace has abounded much more. But note this very carefully. This only applies to those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness. This grace, this gift must be received. God has made provision for all, but it must be personally received. Paul in 2 Corinthians, we then as workers together with him also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. He says, an acceptable time I have heard you in the day of salvation I have helped you Provision has been made, 
Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. John 1, 12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. One has to receive the grace of God, the gift provided. And the way you do this is by faith, by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and Lord. Don't overlook the word receive in verse 17. It's the difference between the reign of death and the reign of life. Alva McLean, there is a qualifying expression, they that receive. That is Paul's answer, receive, receive. That is what man must do in order to be saved. Alva, Alan Johnson says, this life is available only to those who receive the gift. In this way, Paul recalls all that he has taught about the indispensability of faith, chapter 4. The entire passage, 12 through 21 here, neither teaches universalism nor strict individualism, but representationalism with individual responsibility. We got into this mess, not by individual decision alone, but by relationship to our old head, Adam. We get out of the mess, not by individual decision alone, but by our relationship to our new head, Christ. The lavishness of God's grace has been provided in Jesus. Note the abundance of grace, but it must be received by faith. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. Romans 5.1. And this grace is further qualified to be the gift of righteousness. The gift of being right with God on the basis of what Jesus did. Note the emphasis throughout on this being a free gift based on the work of the one man, Jesus Christ. Tremendous emphasis here. The free gift. The gift by grace. The gift. The free gift. The gift. You get it? It's a gift. It's by grace. And it's through the one man. Of the one man, through the one man, Jesus Christ. Those that receive this gift of grace, namely the gift of righteousness, will reign in life through one Jesus Christ. Paul speaks of, the, of death as reigning. He says this in verse 14 and verse 17. But here he speaks of believers reigning in life. No, we might expect Paul to speak of life reigning as a parallel to death reigning, but instead he says believers will reign. They will reign in life. Instead of death reigning over us, now believers reign over it in life. All made possible through the one Jesus Christ. Christ did not just exchange death's reign with life's reign. No, he has done much more in so radically delivering us from death as to now cause us to rule over it. God has now given us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We need no longer fear death. There is a supernatural spiritual reality in death for the believer. Uh, God's peace is real. God is the God of all comfort. There's a supernatural reality in the life of every believer caused by the Holy Spirit. The sting of death has been removed. Yes, the remnants of the old man, Adam, still have a hold on us physically. But we now stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, as Paul says in verse 2. 
we now await the day when death will be swallowed up in resurrection victory. Because of Christ, we as believers are now reconciled to God. We now share in Christ's righteousness. We now share in his life. We now stand in absolute solidarity with Jesus as our new head. You see, all that is his, we now share in. I want you to get that this is the point. We are now joint heirs with Christ. In Christ, God has freely given us all things. I mean, the, it's, it's incredible. Revelation 21, 7, he who overcomes shall inherit a few things. No, 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 no. All. He who overcomes shall inherit all things. I will be his God and he shall be my son. Revelation 22, 5, there shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun for the Lord God gives them light and they shall reign forever and ever. Understand that the main idea throughout this whole context is solidarity. As the natural-born descendants of Adam, we have experienced solidarity with him as our representative, which has involved our unity with him in sin and death. But now as believers, we know solidarity with Christ, our new head. In Christ, everything is better. It is glorious beyond compare, and the best is yet to be. This theme of solidarity is important to get down because this is what Paul builds on as he goes into chapter 6, which talks about being baptized into Christ's death and so forth. The idea is that we are now totally united to Christ, so much so that we share in all that he is, all that he is about. Just as what applied to Adam applies to us. So now in Christ, what applies to him applies to us. Much more. In Christ, we have exchanged the reign of death for reigning in life. Even now, we enjoy the spiritual life of God. We have come to have life in Christ and that more abundantly. We now know the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace. We now have hope, a resurrection hope a hope for the glory of God that we will yet share fully in. Well, as I wrap this message up, here we are on the cusp of a brand new year. What awaits us? Uh, what will the new year bring? Will it bring hardship and heartache? Will we know great joy and success? Only God knows what the immediate future may bring. Corey Ten Boom survived the horror of a Nazi concentration camp in World War II. She saw firsthand the reign of death all around her, but she also knew the reality of reigning in life through Christ. And she wrote this, No pit is so deep that he is not deeper still. With Jesus, even in our darkest moments, the best remains, and the very best is yet to be. Praise God, the last word on death for the believer is life. Through Jesus, we reign in life, and the very best is yet to be. Let's stand and have our closing song, and then I'll close in prayer.